I'm Hilary McClure, Vice President of Multimedia Productions at Cybercrime Magazine. I'm here today with Roger Grimes, data-driven defense evangelist for Know Before, the world's first and largest new school security awareness training and simulated phishing provider that helps you manage the ongoing problem of social engineering. To learn more about Know Before, visit knowbefore.com. Hey, Roger, welcome back. Always great to be speaking with you. I'm always glad to to talk with you and everyone else that shows on up. Glad you're here to listen. Roger, a story that's getting a lot of buzz is about Norway-based security company Promon disclosing a vulnerability in the intercom and security communication devices by Aphone. The vulnerability can be exploited through the near-field communication tag or NFC tag. And since I'm certainly not the expert on this, I'm going to hand the story over to you to take us through since... Of course, you know a lot about it, so much so that you were quoted multiple times in articles about this NFC-driven hack. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting one. And let me say that it's probably very, very common. But in this instance, some penetration testers tried using an NFC connection to an earphone building access code device. I think we're all used to those building access code devices where you walk up to the building, you put in, you know, like a four-digit or a six-digit code. If it's a four-digit code, then that means there's basically 10,000 or less possible combinations. If it's a six-digit code, you know, there's like a million or just under a million possible combinations. And I think we're all used to seeing them and they're becoming even more popular. This particular hack, and let me say again, it's a really popular or really common type of hack where the, maybe a little bit, using near-field communications wirelessly is maybe a little bit different take on it, but they walked up to this particular device and were able to connect to it using NFC and then very quickly go through the 10,000 codes and find one that unlocked it. And probably the part that really caught the media's you know attention is that these devices are installed all over the world, including apparently at the White House. And apparently you can't just do a software firmware upgrade, although I haven't independently verified that, but you know that means that if that's true... That means you have to completely replace the device or send it back to the vendor or something like that to get it rectified. So it's a pretty big deal. I would assume at the White House, it's not as big of a deal as most people might think. I don't think like, you know, I'm walking up to the White House and, you know, using my NFC scanner and walking in the White House. <laughs> like I have to get past physical guards, right? You know, to even get on the campus. The, the threat of being shot is certainly a you know, something that will keep most people from trying that. But it was disappointing in a way in that it's just this really common example of something that should be prevented by default and that it's surprising, not surprising that the vendor had this flaw. The problem is that the vendor didn't have what's called account lockout or rate throttling on this device. Let me say again, really, really common. And it probably, this flaw, this vulnerability probably exists in more places than not, if not the majority of access code devices. But, you know, I think we're all used to in the regular password world where if we or somebody else puts in our password wrong too many times, it will lock our account out. So that's called account lockout, right? That you're allowed to try, you know, if you have more than three incorrect passwords in five minutes or six within 15 minutes or six within 24 hours, that there either is this automatic lockout where there's a counter that has to reset before you can, you know, get back in. So if you put your password in wrong three times, maybe you have to wait 15 minutes or wait maybe until an administrator unlocks it. 
And that's really common in Windows and has been in computer systems for literally decades. And then there's rate throttling, which is how quickly can somebody guess at your PIN code or password. Rate throttling has been around for decades, but not as common, but it's become really more common lately. Like if you're in Microsoft Windows and you're logging in using your password or PIN or something like that, and you put in the incorrect guess, the more often that you put in the incorrect password, even within what's allowed by the account lockout policy, it will take longer and longer and longer for you to log on in. Or there's some random set aside. So like the first time you put in the incorrect password, it takes seven seconds before you can try again. Next time it takes 37 seconds. Next time it takes 17 seconds. So this combination of account lockout which means you can only guess incorrectly a certain amount of times in a particular period without causing that account not to be accessible for logins for a particular period of time. And rate throttling, which is how many times can I guess per instance of that login capability, really, really common in today's password world. I think we're all used to it. It's been a really good protector. It means people can't come up to some logon screen that you have and just sit there and guess in perpetuity forever until they finally guess your password or your pen. But it turns out these building access code devices, a lot of them don't have those protections. Further, the reason why this interested me more is that I've really seen the lack of these two protections, again, account lockout and rate throttling on a whole lot of multi-factor authentication instances. I even wrote about it in my hacking multi-factor authentication book by Wiley from a couple of years ago that, you know, it's amazing the name brand names, vendors that when they implemented their first version of multi-factor authentication, if it included a passcode or a pen or something like that, also did not enable rate throttling and account lockout. It's like a who's who of the computer world. It's Microsoft, Facebook, Twitter, Slack, Uber. So I've watched over the years as penetration testers and hackers have just found out that these vendors implemented at least the first version of their MFA without putting account lockout and rate throttling so anybody could guess. And I think probably the funniest one to me was Twitter. Twitter had... I don't know whether to call this a success or not. Well, it's not. I don't call it a success, but it's so strange. I have to think that this particular Twitter decision was made by committee, which is not a good thing, because Twitter said, okay, you can guess as many times as you like, but only 250 times per IP address. So their rate limiting an account lockout was you can guess at the code as many times as you like, but only 250 times per IP address. So this penetration tester said, oh, I will just rent IP addresses on AWS or Azure. I forget which one. And I don't think he even paid for the systems he used. I think he like signed up for like a, a trial account and then fired off like four different machines with different IP addresses going at Twitter and broke the code. And I'm like, why would anybody allow 250 guesses? So you can guess 249 times per IP address and that doesn't lock you out. <laughs> like, well, how did they come up with 250 as being the account lockout? And I can only guess that there was somebody that wanted like five and there was another person that wanted like a thousand or 10,000 or something. And well, let's go to 250. See how that goes. I mean, it was just a bizarre number. But it really is. It became something that I called out. You know, when I spoke it, I recently spoke in Seattle last month 
at the Authenticate conference was one of the larger MFA conferences. And I gave this talk to vendors going, hey, you need to fix your MFA solutions. And one of the things in there was the lack of accountability for account lockout and rate throttling. I mean, so it's a big deal. So when I saw this, you know, Aerophone one, I thought, eh, you know, it's just yet another vendor. I'm shaking my head. And the thing that I got quoted a lot of the article, I was like, this is actually a really bad problem. Don't blame this Aerophone. It's everywhere, right? This Aerophone's just the one that we're knowing about today. It's everywhere. It's most of the building access code devices, probably. It is a whole lot of MFA solutions. You know, the problem's a lot worse than this article is stating. It's not just one vendor's problem. And they all have a commonality, which is the developers and vendors of this product apparently didn't do any threat modeling and didn't include basic defenses of account lockout and rate throttling, which have been around for decades in the computer world. It's scary that major vendors are missing what is absolutely just the basics. That's what I want to get out there is don't blame this one vendor. They're just one thousands that have this problem. There's a much bigger problem behind it. Interesting and well put. Certainly sounds like a large problem. Well, Roger, I guess next, I know that you're working on a project to get secure coding taught in universities. So I'd love for you to share as much as you can about what spurred this project, how it's going, what you're working on, and I guess what's up ahead because it sounds really fascinating. And obviously it's very important. I can kind of connect the dots of, you know, what I think made you want to take this on, but I'd like to hear it from you. Yeah. You know, so when I I heard this, one of the quotes, you know, with the latest vulnerability is like, Hey, you know, the ultimate problem is that developers and coders get almost no training, zero to little training in how to develop software securely, even for security products. And let me say, this goes way back, you know, like I remember especially, so I'm going back probably two decades, but back in 2002, Bill Gates put out this trustworthy initiative memo that said, hey, Microsoft has to do a better job of coding. We're going to stop, close down coding and get everybody trained in secure development lifecycle, SDL. And at the time, two people at Microsoft, Michael Howard, who I think is still at Microsoft and Dave LeBlanc the key people behind pushing this initiative to Bill Gates. I think it was their contacts with Bill Gates that said, hey, we have to do a better job at coding. And that means training people on how to do secure development lifecycle, SDL. And it's called different things, but SDL is what it was called at Microsoft. And Bill Gates literally stopped all coding development. Microsoft said, we need to train our coders. Michael Howden, Dave LeBlanc's book went huge, one of the best-selling computer books of all time. And it, you know, it just talked about teaching the basics. And and I remember talking to Michael Howard and he said, this 20 years ago, he said, hey, there's almost nobody is taught secure coding in school. And that really resonated for me. And so when I heard this particular latest attack, you know, it's like these coders just don't know how to code securely. And let's see, I have a daughter-in-law that is a new coder. And she recently took a course, an online course from, I think it was MIT, And it was a really intense, like six week course that taught her all kinds of things about programming. And I said, did you get any training in security and security development lifecycle? She said, no. Whoa. So it finally hit me that like, it's still not happening. Like we had last year, we had at least 20,142 different bugs reported, publicly reported bugs that had to be patched. And the bad thing about bugs, even if they get patched right away, 
first of all, once the bug is announced, people reverse engineer the patch and the vulnerability exploit comes out. And once the patch is announced, that's when the attacks really start happening most of the time. Most attacks aren't zero days. It's mostly things that are known being attacked. And worse off than that, there's always this large percentage of people that either never patch or take forever to patch. And so every bug announced is a vulnerability into people's systems, you know, or at least the people that don't know how to patch in a timely manner. So we need to do what we can to decrease the amount of bugs. And SDL is this idea that you train your developers and how to do secure development lifecycle stuff or and how to do secure programming. And they use more secure programming languages that have more secure defaults. A big thing you'll hear these days, and CISA, Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, announced this last week. We want to make sure programmers are using type safe languages, type safe. An untype safe language is a language that will allow any particular data field, be it a number or what's called an integer or a literal or whatever it might be, to be used as something else. So a type safe language, the programmer has to declare, well, this is a low order integer field. This is a number. This is text. Yeah. So probably the simplest explanation, not being technical, is for a type safe language, the language would require the programmer to go, hey, and again, this is a very simplified example. This is a number. No, this is text. (laughs) And that type safeness of having to declare what that data is, the type of data, significantly reduces bugs. And languages like C and C++ and stuff are not type safe. So the, the most popular programming languages used in the world are not type safe. So, you know, SDL is this big thing, this big overview that says you want to train developers in how to avoid making common bugs. And one of those would be, in this particular instance, Anytime you have an input of a small value, a pen, a password or something, you must enable account lockout and rate throttling. There's almost no way to include that as something automatic in a programming language. Maybe an AI scanner or something might be able to help, but you need to train your developers and how to do secure development. I guess that was shocking a couple of decades ago when I was with Foundstone and we were reviewing McAfee. McAfee had bought Foundstone and McAfee asked Foundstone to review their code, and it was full of thousands of errors. And it was shocking to me that security people, again, didn't know how to securely program. And it all came about to me that, you know, a big part of the reason is when you go to college or university or technical school or any course you can take on the internet, you're not required to take secure programming classes. Almost nobody you know, and I remember when I used to hire programmers for a living, I used to hire people all the time. I would go through a hundred people applying to be my web server, you know, programmer, and none of them knew anything about computer security. I mean, I remember some of them going, well, Python's safe by itself. You know, like, huh? So I heard this complaint again. I saw this latest attack airphone and, and I was talking to another friend of mine. We're having weekly meetings to try to fix the internet. And I suddenly realized it's amazing that we don't have universities and colleges and technical schools, like, you know, you can probably count on one hand the number of universities and colleges that actually require any secure programming hours, much less a course. Like literally, there's not that many. I don't really know of anywhere it's required, but at least some that strongly offer it recommend it. So you know what, this needs to stop. And so 
I created a new group. I just kind of gave it a name today, and I'm just making this name up on the fly here, but the Secure Coding Curriculum Initiative. And I reached out to everybody that I knew that really had kind of a personal invested interest in trying to get secure coding pushed to universities and colleges and technical schools. And most of them, with only one exception, everybody immediately agreed to get involved. So I really have this small team of people already. Gary McGraw, who wrote a lot of secure coding books, and he used to lead teams on finding bugs in Java and stuff. He was one of the leading inventors of secure coding initiatives at his different companies. Gary McGraw, he's a famous guy. Then I also reached out to Michael Howard and Dave LeBlanc. They both agreed to be part of it. Lauren Kohnfelder, who is the inventor of PKI, who just released, as far as I know, the most recent book on secure coding, he agreed to be part of it. And just one by one, I started asking different people, Adam Shostak and other people, you know, hey, will you be a part of this? At the very least, I think we're going to present an open letter to all the colleges, universities, and technical schools going, this is a big problem. This is why there's 20,142 bugs last year, which, by the way, is an average of like 11 to 55 a day, day after day, year after year. They're just everywhere. And I'm going to do an open letter going, hey, you need to require secure coding in the classes. And uh, um, Vericode also signed, the CTO of Vericode, uh, Chris Wasoffel also got on there, one of the original hackers, the first hacker I know that testified to Congress. And I reached out to Director Jen Easterly at CISA, and she assigned someone on her staff to get involved. So it seems to be going forward. It seems to be, I was like, man, why don't we have secure coding being taught in colleges and universities and technical schools? Well, if someone hasn't tried it before, I'm going to try it. And I got together this group and I reached out to CISA and other, and it seems to be gaining steam. There seems to be, I don't know whether I'll be successful, but at the very least, I think we're going to write this open letter, send it to all the universities and say, hey, you need to be teaching. The reason why we have so many bugs in the world is that you're literally not teaching people how not to do bugs. I mean, I'm not a coder or a developer, but I know enough that if I was put on a programming team, I would teach them to do account lockout and rate throttling for pen inputs. Like it's just dumb. But you have not only this latest attack, but again, Slack and Twitter and Facebook and Uber, you know, all these big name vendors that when they went to go develop it, they're like, oh, we got this great new multi-factor authentication method or building access code thing. And they didn't know enough to put in the basics to stop, you know, very simple attacks. So it comes down to, I decide to put my, you know, I'm going to try. I got all kinds of initiatives going. (laughs) I got all kinds of things I'm trying to do. It's almost laughable that I'm in this new one, but it does seem to be gaining steam faster than anything else I've tried to do. And so that's what I'm going to do. And my really big hope, and if anybody knows the answer to this, I'm looking to see, is there an association that helps recommend what college curriculums and university curriculums and technical school curriculums should contain for their IT majors, especially programming majors. Because, you know, I'm hoping to influence a couple of large agencies and groups so that all of a sudden it's communicated to all these colleges and technical schools and universities. You must include secure development as part of your programming course, because we're being massacred in bugs and hacked to death because people aren't required to take any training. I mean, how can you expect coders to securely develop anything if we're not actually training them? And we need employers 
to demand, like Microsoft did, like Bill Gates did in 2002 in the Trustworthy Computing Initiative. That's a kind of a famous thing in our world where he's like, I want all developers to have this training. We're going to stop and get this training. And let me say it worked. It significantly reduced the number of bugs in Microsoft code to where that Microsoft went from being seen as this, oh, they're being hacked all the time to actually having less bugs in their code than any of their nearest competitors, Google and Apple and all that stuff. Today, Microsoft code is among the best checked, least buggy per thousand lines of code of any code that's out there. It worked. It worked. It was so successful that Apple picked it up and even hired one of the major SDL people away from Microsoft and Adobe picked it up, you know, and we need all vendors to require secure development training in their developers. And we need universities and colleges and technical schools to get on board and start teaching it. How can we expect people to be these innate secure developers if they've never had the training ever, right? Totally right. Makes total sense to me. I commend you, Roger. I know that you have a lot going on and, you you know, it's one more thing added to your plate, but it sounds like you're getting a lot of forward momentum already, getting it off the ground. And I think it's really important. So I'm really excited for you. Yeah, thank you. We'll see where it goes. You know, I push hard on a lot of things. And my wife describes me as a slow moving bulldozer. And that <laughs> might be acropos in all kinds of ways, including my weight. You know, I'm trying and, you know, I'm going to fight the good fight and see where we can go. I will say this particular initiative feels different because it seems to be moving quicker and getting more people signing on and certainly having Jen Easterly and the CISA behind trying to help this as well. And again, the the CISA, Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, was pushing, let's have type safe languages. That's a really big deal. It's a very simple deal that makes perfect sense. We need to have safer programming languages. And a lot of people know that, but not everybody knows that. There's just some things like even if your programming language is safer, there's all kinds of things like account throttling and account lockout that the language itself cannot innately implement. Like it literally comes down to teaching people about the need for it, how to program it and how to look for it during a code review. Education is a big part of it. And without the education, you're just not going to get the full benefit. Type safe languages aren't going to save us in everything. It's going to be a part of the solution, getting rid of the problem. And a big piece of it's also going to be education. So I'm going to work on the education piece, which kind of fits. Noble Force all about, you know, security awareness, training, and education. So it kind of falls in line there. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. I guess the final, our third topic, I said we'd have three topics today. Our third topic, and you mentioned Twitter a couple of times. So finally, Twitter and Elon Musk are obviously getting a lot of attention lately. But just a quick bit, I saw that you shared some information on your LinkedIn about how some users with MFA enabled on Twitter in their accounts, they haven't been able to log in. So I'd love for you to just quickly tell us about what's going on here and what you think the future implications could be. Certainly, Twitter has been going through all kinds of problems, right? They had half their staff let go once Musk got on board. He fired a bunch of contractors. You know, I'm an outsider looking in. It's easy to throw stones. and I don't know, you know, how brilliant Musk is at it. But it does seem to be a lot of upheaval, controversy, and letting people go. CISO resigned. <laughs> the compliance officer resigned. <laughs> and those people, literally, uh, Twitter had signed at least two U.S. government 
you know, concessions where they had to comply with different things and you have your head compliance and you have your CI. Let me say, it's not helping the security <laughs> of them to have those things taken away, have those people quit. Someone shared with me that they couldn't get logged into Twitter with their MFA and that if you logged out, you could not get back in. This kind of went across my channel because I'm, you know, the MFA, hacking MFA guy. Although it came back that it was just people using the SMS-based version, which is a horrible version anyways. You shouldn't be using it. But saying that the other versions, like the FIDO versions, if you're using a FIDO key or something, we're still working. And let me say, I don't know whether the SMS version is back up or not, but it is kind of concerning that for at least many hours that you had a major authentication method go down and they couldn't get it back up. I even read rumors, or I don't know if they're rumors, but I read someone state from Twitter insiders that Twitter has never done full cold boot testing, which is this idea that, you know, if you have to reboot stuff and these insiders were saying that if you rebooted basically Twitter and what makes Twitter work, that they think it would be down for weeks to months. Whoa. So, and let me say firing all kinds of people, including developers and stuff like that, and having your CISO go away and having your compliance officer go away. And then you have your MFA not working at least for many hours, if not more, you know, at least part of your MFA. It is signs of trouble. And I'm a Twitter user. I like Twitter. I hope it survives. I hope Elon Musk is successful in turning the company around and all that sort of stuff. I hope Twitter doesn't go away, but it does certainly seem to be having some growing pains right now. And certainly Musk is being blamed a lot of it, which may be fair or unfair. He's being blamed for a lot of it. But, you know, he's like, hey, I've got an unprofitable company. I got to make profitable and got to make cuts. And, you know, although I did see like he asked all of his employees had to sign this letter that they were agreeing to work as hard as they've ever worked or else they're gone. Oof. You know, and he, I heard he's requiring like 10 hour days, seven days a week. And, you know, I got to say, and they got to work from the office. They can't work from home. I got to say, not a guy I want to work for. No, <laughs> I love that. No before has the best work-life balance of any company. When I worked for Microsoft, they were also very big in work-life balance. And at no before it's even better, you know, we even have unlimited vacation as long as you're getting your job done. And I love working for organizations that actually realize that you're not just an employee. And I can't imagine anybody wanting to just be a cog in an organization that doesn't care about work-life balance. But I'm an old man now. Maybe I would have felt different when I was 20 or 30. Be in the trenches and work <laughs> forever. But nope, I'm, you know, I'm glad that I, I have a family and a life and kids and grandkids and, uh, Glad I'm not having to sign that letter or look for another job today. So, but maybe it's just his way to cut workforce, right? Let me say things as unpleasant as possible and let everybody quit. And then we can start rebuilding by who's left. <laughs> yeah, let everybody opt out on their own. Yeah, we have a great work-life balance here at Cybercrime Magazine as well. So very grateful for that because I used to be a cog in a wheel once upon a time. And when you're younger, you feel like it's important and it's, you know, whatever. But yeah, as you get older, you're like, no, thank you. <laughs> like, I, I do want a life. It's it's nice to have a life and work. You can have both. It's possible. But yeah, yeah. And let me say again, with no before again, is that it's not only something they talk about; they really do yeah. live the value. Like, I guess the companies that say we're a family. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I love that's pretty funny, Hillary. I have seen those companies. You're exactly right. We're a family, but God forbid you try to take an hour off yeah. in the middle of a project. So I'm glad that I'm in someone that not only talks about it, lives those values. I think it makes me a more productive employee. Yeah. I'm far more creative mm -hmm. and delivering more work than ever before. So, you know, there must be something to it. 
I think when you work seven, 10 hour days, you're just going to break down eventually and be less productive. Yeah. And you're going to miss stuff totally, which doesn't sound like Twitter can afford right now. So good luck to them and good luck to anyone listening who works at Twitter. We uh, feel for you. And um, one of my friends said, so that means all the people that are good that can get jobs are going to leave Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then leaving the people that can't get other yeah, jobs. It's just, so, you know, challenging times mm-hmm. ahead. It's going to be interesting to watch it unfold. I'm sh- I foresee us speaking about it again at some point for sure. And with that, Roger, Thank you so much for joining us and weighing in on three topics this week. I know that that is a lot, but you did a great job as always. And it's always a pleasure to listen to what you have to say. And I'm excited about your initiative as well. I'm sure we'll be talking about that again also. Yeah, thank you. And thanks everybody for listening in each week. I'm Hillary McClure, Vice President of Multimedia Productions at Cybercrime Magazine. Joining me today was Roger Grimes, data-driven defense evangelist for Know Before, the world's first and largest new school security awareness training and simulated phishing provider that helps you manage the ongoing problem of social engineering. <laughs>